All right, this is for the future. Always, I, I get nervous every week. I hope everyone understands that before we press record, I am like, oh my God, here we go. <laughs> Even though this is Opus 108. There's a little anxiety. All right, so Scott, for this week's downbeat, we're going to go over to Wyoming. So this is how we got here. Because <laughs> all of this seems random, but in my crazy mind, it works. Okay, so here in the Twin Cities over this past weekend, it was Pride. And for uh, to celebrate, Dell and I went out to a gay bar. We don't do that all <laughs> that often. And we chose to go to the Eagle, Eagle Bolt Bar. You know, so in mm-hmm. any city, in most cities, major cities, there's a bar called the Eagle. Or in Memphis, is the pumping station, Diesel. Um, you know, some variation on these words. <laughs> um, so, you know, we went and I uh, had never been there before. But based on knowing that, you know, we knew what to expect out of this bar. And it was a really great time. Had a, had a phenomenal time. Anyway, so I'm scrolling through the news, just sort of looking at, you know, what to talk about this week. And I see that a bar called the Eagle in Wyoming, not quite the Eagle, the Eagle's Nest in Wyoming, made the news. Let's 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 take a listen here. The Eagle's Nest, a biker bar in Cheyenne, Wyoming, has been criticized for selling a T-shirt that uses an anti-LGBTQ slur. Here we go. The shirt shows an old bearded man pointing a gun at the viewer. It reads, in Wyoming, we have a cure for AIDS. We shoot F can day F G G asterisk T S. The bar sold out of the shirts. Sold out. Mm-hmm. The bar's owner, Ray Berezik, told the Cheyenne Post that he won't reorder more because he's in the bar business, not the apparel business. We hoped that they would choose to stop selling them when they realized the harm it did to the LGBTQ community. But they didn't give a goddamn. With AIDS, Wyoming Equality, the state's LGBTQ organization, said in a public Facebook post published last Saturday. We don't have we don't have to get into the response, but right. the shirt sold out. And if y'all couldn't understand the sort of automated voice there, the bar, the Eagles Nest Bar in Wyoming, was selling a shirt that said, "We have a cure for AIDS." And in essence, they're talking about shooting gay people. And the shirt sold out. Number one, I am grateful that I didn't happen to move to Wyoming for some job or go somewhere and look up, oh, the Eagle's Nest Bar. Oh, I know what that is, and show up there. Wouldn't that have been a mess? Where's my board? <laughs> Wouldn't that have been, I need to do this instead. Wouldn't that have been a mess? That would have been a mess. And the shirt sold out. So what this says to me is Wyoming is a place that I need to stay away from. Do you have any Wyoming experience, camping, hiking, that yep. sort of thing? Yep. I know the landscape is beautiful. We can't, you know, shout out to Mother Nature. Yep. Um, it is very beautiful. It's windy. But the people, um, the, and even, the, the wild animals that are there. Right. Yep. You are you are not at the top of the food chain out there. <laughs> no, I'm um, talking about the wild animals in this bar. <laughs> like I said, you are not at the top of the food chain out there. But um, also, you know, that's where that famous attack on that... Uh, Matthew Shepard. Right. That's and they where said that it happened. was like a 30-minute, maybe an hour drive from there. Right. So all so, these years later, all this stuff has not changed right. there. Yeah. And, and I could see them with that box of shirts and selling out, you know, and people wear them around. You selling know, like out. Yeah. They're, then they'll wear them around like, you know, hey, we're owning the libs or we're, you know... You know, screw your feelings type people. And you know what? This instance isn't going to shut this bar down, is it? <laughs> no. Yes. Problematic institutions have a way of surviving, don't they? Problematic institutions of all types, especially the so-called classical ones. Let's get into it. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to put a flat next to that. 
I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. Do you ever, have you ever been in a performance or maybe even on the radio? And when you mess up just the very beginning, it's like, okay, well, here we are. It's fine. Like, that's, where, that's when all the jitters go away. <laughs> yep. <laughs> here we are live to tape thank you everyone for being here this podcast called triloquy challenges the conversations and the notions surrounding that phrase classical music so thank you so much for being here to the returning listeners to the new listeners thank you so much for giving us a giving us a shot trying us out if you like what you hear tell your friends and visit triloquy.org for more information and to find out how you can contribute to this project triloquy is made possible in part by the shuttleworth Foundation. The Shuttleworth Foundation is a small social investor that provides funding to dynamic leaders who are at the forefront of social change. For more information on the Shuttleworth Foundation of South Africa, you can visit shuttleworthfoundation.org. I would also love to send a shout out and a thank you to Public Media Development and Marketing Conference. I had the pleasure of speaking at their luncheon last week, and uh, it was really phenomenal. Thank you so much. The Public Media Development and Marketing Conference is Public Media largest conference devoted to issues surrounding revenue generation marketing and management i'm not sure which of those my uh, speech fell under <laughs> maybe generation oh wait that's not a choice but <laughs> but thank you thank you so much pmdmc hmm. uh, for your support and for having me we have a classically dope guest and uh a little interesting triloquy mm-hmm. as well so let's go ahead and get into it. and this is the button that should go here actually right on just for the new people Nailed that marks it. that marks the first movement that's anyway you know we messed up the beginning and i love it <laughs> can i uh can i add a quick sharp here megan the stallion is the first woman rapper to be on the cover of the sports illustrated swimsuit issue oh did you enjoy of course <laughs> where's my there you go say yep. <laughs> shout out to megan the stallion we love Megan the stallion here but um the very first you know composer that we have to honor today. Have you ever met a girl that you tried to date? But a year to make love, she wanted you to wait. Let me tell you a story of my situation. I was talking to this girl from the U.S. nation. The way that I met her was on Classical music, Scott. Classical mm-hmm. music. Talk to me about where this song takes you. Uh, this this incredible work by the, the now late Biz Marquis. When you hear this, where do you go? The green room of the theater department at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, where one of my fellow students played that tape till it wore out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> when I hear that tune, I think about, you know, the point of this show. That's a tune that most people recognize by ear to some extent. And mm-hmm. um, I sat down and played that little piano theme uh, uh, and you know, got into my theory for a second and into my techniques, feeling like I'm learning something. Those uh, C sharp to D grace notes aren't <laughs> aren't easy, but not graceful. Um, you know, rest in peace, rest in power to the now Biz Marquis. I think about this, Scott, every time um, a big figure in music transitions. 
we have to do a better job of celebrating these folks while they're here. And not that Biz Marquis did not get his flowers. I don't know if you know the show. Uh, pa- uh, what was the name of that show? I think it was called Power or something. For, y'all will correct me if you know, but it used to come on and it starred Taraji P. Henson and um, Terrence, the musician, the actor, Terrence Howard. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And basically it was about a family that ran a, a music uh, a business, like a, a record label anyway. For Valentine's Day, I believe, on one episode, um, uh, Taraji P. Henson's husband in the show surprised her with Biz Marquis coming and singing that song, cool. like, as she woke up to bed. Anyway, just, uh-huh. you know, an ode to hip-hop, you know, and love and, and all of that sort of stuff. So, again, all of that to say, Biz Marquis definitely got his flowers while he was here, but there's something to be said about how we all, despite so-called genre, celebrate folks after they're gone, especially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as soon as, as they go. You know? And then there's a big flurry or a flourish of interest in their music. And, you know, a lot of times the death of an artist is their biggest financial opportunity. Yeah. People go and buy their stuff after they die. Yeah, yeah. So good for their estate. But um, also you have to remember that uh, Bismarcky was around for a lot of people who uh, listen to the Beastie Boys because he was sure he was prominently featured on the Ill Communication album. Yeah, yeah. So when I think about the video to this, you know, his most famous composition, "Just a Friend," mm-hmm. dressed up in that uh, Mozart, but, wig. but maybe we should say he was dressed up like the Chevalier. Right. He was dressed up as Chevalier de Saint George. Mm-hmm. I think about the fact that hip hop, even you know earlier. But much early, I, I think it's fair to say this is early-ish hip-hop, concern, considering sure, its 40, 45-year sure. history. At that point, there was still vision of so-called classical, of Western classical in those spaces. You know, understanding mm-hmm. the kitsch of dressing up that way and, and pretending that you're playing the piano theme, or maybe he was really playing it. I don't think the inverse is true. That's one of the other things I was thinking about is, you know, everyone was talking about Biz Marquis and um, his passing away. The fact that those communities, that producer, whatever, saw the connection that they could make, but we don't always on the classical side reach back and make those connections to hip hop. Do you see what I'm saying? Sure. Um, you know, there's also an instance where Biz Marquis was one of the first rappers to have to pay a really hefty uh lawsuit mm-hmm. uh almost two million dollars i believe that because that is a sample right uh not on that one he uh and i forget the name of the track but he sampled a guy named gilbert get this gilbert o- o'sullivan okay was the guy's name oh, and <laughs> all right i get it I and get it. <laughs> yeah and so Bismarcky sampled the um the song alone again do you know that alone mm-hmm. again naturally naturally um and he had to pay out a bunch of money, so I have to wonder what that did to his estate. Okay, but people have also been talking about Freddie Scott. You got what I need. Oh, baby, you, you got what I need. You got everything I need. You like medicine you need. Oh, rest in peace, rest in power to Biz Marquis and, you know, warm thoughts to his family. I know, you know, that losing someone is heavy but if they can be assured from anything of anything from me is that you know Bismarck he changed the world this is a piece of classical music this is something when it comes to the American oeuvre the American just catalog of all great compositions if you're gonna you know collect the 100 greatest 
songs that America has given to the world. This is up there. It's it's in the top 100. What do you think of his moniker that he earned, the, the clown prince of hip-hop? What, mm-hmm. what do you think of that? I think just not taking one oneself too seriously and and even in the vocals when he's singing the hook you can hear that he's not just trying to sing he's a rapper who is you know not taking himself too seriously i love it so this drunken style Mm -hmm. okay so is this like drunken boxing is this um talk about the drunken style a little bit i'm not sure about the drunken style (laughs) (laughs) i don't let's put some respect on him i mean it's not that he was drunk doing the music or is that he would I think it's just the the feeling of being free and you know those early uh uh you know essences of of hip-hop really being against the grain and unapologetically you and I feel like more than hearing the drunkness we're just hearing the the realness of his voice the trillness if you will um just to be clear, I was quoting an article that I read. <laughs> see and that'll so, get you messed up, you see? I do. But my question is so my question is about the shtick of sure. it, though. I don't. Yeah, no, I I understand your question. I don't know if it's so much shtick as much as it's him um, not uh, uh, conforming to anything, not uh, being uh, tightened up or bound by anything. Just showing up, and this but, is what I got to say. This is the story I got to tell. But earlier, I played for you "Vapors," okay. which is him just rapping straight ahead. Yeah, I feel like you can still hear that, and even that song. But you said that's not as good of a song. I think it's not as famous of a song. I mean, maybe I, I, I we can't objectively say that's not as good of a song, but it's a reason why this is the one that we're talking about. This is the one that the world is talking about and not vapors, right? Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, that's that's all I'm saying. That, that, no, that I, I get it. I just, I'm, I'm just curious. All right. I'm well, here's a, little, here's a little bit more of Just a Friend. Again, rest in peace to the late Biz Marquis. She acted kind of strange. Then when I asked, do you have a man? She tried to pretend. She said, no, I don't. I only have a friend. Come on. I'm not even going for it. This what I'm going to sing. You got what I need, but you say he just a friend, and you say he just a friend. Oh, baby, you. Drunken style. Mm-hmm. These white people that write these articles gonna get you fucked up, Scott. I don't know what race. The, <laughs> I don't know what race the authors were. I. Let's not leave that just quite yet. Like, help me. Like, I don't want to completely dismiss the point, but when when you talk about drunken style, you're saying that there is a drunkenness that, w- or the writer was saying there's a drunkenness that was brought to hip hop, or wh- sure. why is that a thing? Go ahead. Let's, and let's go, talk about it. Let's see here. I'm just going to go ahead and Google Bismarcky drunken style. And bang, here in some of the first hits, uh, Bismarcky's drunken praying mantis style. Uh, uh, of the drunken style. Here we are. Uh, this is a uh, sort of a Twitter obit thing, I guess. Oh, so somebody from Twitter said this. Okay. So Otto von Bismarcky, <laughs> let's see. Uh, rest in peace to the biz, the epitome of hip-hop wild style, unhinged comedy and goofball wit, beatbox mastery, and booger-picking pioneering of the drunken style. <laughs> Look, all I'm saying is that he was being, his art is authentic. I don't, I don't, I don't feel oh, comfortable describing it as a shtick. I'm not, I don't think that's what, I mean, do you think that's what it was? Maybe I'm... I mean, you have more of the you know perspective on this song in particular than I do. 
No, I was just curious if you had an idea or if you had any insight as to why the irreverent rap style was preferable to you over his straight ahead rap style like in the song Vapors. Well, sure. Well, I mean, all I was saying was it's not as famous of a song. I mean, the beat, let's just, just so the people know. I didn't mean for us to be spending all this time here. <laughs> no, but Seriously. he deserves it. He he de- he deserved it. Let's go to vapors real quick. Just in, so this drum style is very similar. I mean, it goes. Don't get me wrong. Reminds me of like middle period French Prince. You know, French print, fresh Prince. Right. I don't know if the vibe that I'm getting from him and his voice is all that different than you know just a friend. Fair enough. But you know, shout out to that song as well. Vapor's he also uh, he also had a great cameo in uh, Men in Black Two. Oh, what did he do? I don't know if I caught that one. He was an alien. He was a an extraterrestrial that communicated through beatbox. Oh. <laughs> That's brilliant. I'm gonna go have to. I'm gonna have to search that for yeah. sure. <laughs> anyway, yes. Yeah, so again, shout out and rest in power to Biz Marquis. If y'all don't really know the uh, oeuvre, the the repertoire, the catalog of Biz Marquis. Go learn something new this week. I'm going to go uh, dive deep and, you know, not be just one of the people who listens to the hit song, you know, after they die. Mm-hmm. But the hit song is a hit. It, I shouldn't say but. And yeah. the hit song is a hit. Truth. All right. So um, from Biz Marquis to um, classical music to classical theater. Take it away, Scott. Well, I found this article from South Africa. And first, I should uh, qualify this by saying that South Africa has decriminalized cannabis. So it's not full-on legal, but evidently, I guess you can just have it. That's something. Shout okay. out to South Africa. So uh, you know all about this off-Broadway hit, Drunk Shakespeare. You know about drunk history. We've often talked here about uh, you wanting to do uh, like a Harriet Tubman uh, drunk history. Well, Crystals wanted... did Harriet Tubman. I thought we should do uh, Beethoven and Bridge Tower. Okay, okay. That was it. <laughs> That's right. Right. <laughs> Well, in South Africa, they have taken uh, this concept one step further, and you can now go and watch Much Ado About Nothing. It's a a baked Shakespeare production Mm -hmm. where one of the five cast members will smoke a joint on stage in front of the audience, and then the rest of the (laughs) the rest of the cast just sort of has to deal with that person in that altered state. So what do you think? Well, first of all, in your theater experience, have you done anything close to this? I mean, even, I don't know, like Un- been drunk on stage? Or unwillingly. What? Unwillingly. Oh, wait a minute. You were drugged. Oh, give me the tea. <laughs> no, meaning that I was in a show where our uh, one of our leads was late, mm-hmm. showed up probably three martinis deep. Okay. Okay, so not falling down yet but slurry and sloppy yeah and i was playing her son and to be on stage with her and doing a scene i'm sitting here thinking is she is she gonna remember her lines worse is she gonna throw up (laughs) is she gonna throw up on me you know i don't know what to do so yeah that was and you were playing the son that was a terrifying experience on stage now if it's the goal Uh uh-huh that's different you should have you should have been like, Mommy, why do you smell like daddy does? Because I wasn't five. <laughs> I was the adult son of an adult woman. 
Okay, so anyway, back to uh, South Africa and Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. He's getting high mm -hmm. and perform, and they're getting high and performing Shakespeare. Y'all will really do any damn thing to get us interested in this classical now, stuff. Y'all will do anything. I thought I found something you were really gonna like, <laughs> and and turns out even this is this is wrong. You don't think this is a dope twist? It turns it into well, I'll say this. From my perspective, it turns it the performance into something different. It turns it into, okay, is he going to remember the lines? Is he gonna go off onto a spiel? Is instead of, oh, listen to Shakespeare. I don't know. So maybe that's a good thing. Oh, this got a sharp, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, from you. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. So I don't know. Maybe maybe that is a good thing. But that's that's what I'm thinking about. It it turns it into a competition between the repertoire you know the 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 theater and the inebriation instead of a performance of do, this, do you get what i'm saying i do and in this instance uh weed is in a, a performance enhancement will it enhance the performance that's the question that is the question is this enhancing well, according to, to this article they're still they are sure billing it as such read it re read a little the bit the hilarity will happen in the bakery of Kalk bay's iconic olympia cafe each of the, uh, yeah, so it says we use marijuana. One member will smoke on stage. It creates new vocal points and narratives. It adds spice and allows every show to have surprises. It allows every performance to be different. Now, I would push back a little bit there and say, well, if you're, you know, if you're really doing good theater, each performance is going to be different. It's different anyway. Right, but... Um, this throws a wrench into things. Like if somebody's, you know, juggling with three tennis balls and you throw a chainsaw in, <laughs> you throw in a joint. There you go. You mentioned Derek Water, uh, drunk history, Derek Water somewhere saying this. How do you think Derek Waters feel about this? He probably should, uh, uh, rooting it on. I, I would hope, I don't know, but. I think there's room for irreverence. Let's let's take a let's take a a page out of Bismarcky's playbook. Sure, there's sure. there's room for fun to to look at this. Yeah, a little sideways. Well, um, we've already established on Triloquy that I have performed high. <laughs> the I don't know. I'll never I'll never forget that symphonic metamorphosis. <laughs> did, did, I, did, I did you walk it, out? Of, did you did walk it. out a changed man? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was well that was the thing. I walked off stage like, "Ooh, okay, I made it." You know, and, and instead of, "Oh, did you hear the such and such and, you know, the the goal was to make it through. The goal I was not to make music, you know." Terrified. <laughs> so that's what that's what I think about here again with the Shakespeare thing. The goal is okay. Make it to the end, say your lines, and let's do it. <laughs> and for the audience, well, and, and the more I think about this, the more I ramble. I'm thinking about the, you know, alleged, uh, according to legend, uh, uh, ecosystem, the, the sort of aesthetic of seeing these plays at the Globe Theater, you know, folks down in the in the bottom eating mutton chops getting and fights. getting, you know, and all that. And so, Interacting with the actors, so heckling. I, so I guess we're getting back to our roots, getting back to their roots. Well, you said, you know, you said that <laughs> there's already orchestras out there that are billing concerts around cannabis. Yeah, uh, Col so, the Colorado Symphony was uh, getting into that when they were legal, when they legalized. So, sure. So, and and so, then this is also in conjunction with uh, semi-recent uh, decriminalization. In, right? in South Africa, yeah. You know, so they're, they're just Cape excited. Town. They're excited. I don't blame them. Don't Room blame for all. Them. Well, toy, toy, toy to <laughs> everyone. I hope it goes 
um, highly. <laughs> I'm sure. Nice. I'm sure it's a performance that will be highly favored. It, it, it comes highly recommended. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I don't know if I'm going to go see Shakespeare if somebody is high, but Shakespeare on the screen has definitely caught my attention. My number one. Uh, and actually, we were uh, talking about this with somebody. Uh, there was a couple at the Eagle, <laughs> back to that, that uh, chatted Dell and I up. And we were like, oh, so you, the first time here, oh, us too, blah, 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 blah. They ended up being theater folks. So we started talking about how much, uh, how the similarities between the push in classical music and theater, really trying to push things more contemporary. Mm -hmm. They're all into that contemporary theater aesthetic, you know, in, in the same way that I'm into the classical. But we did admit, you know, I, I think I brought it up, that there were movie adaptations that, you know, got us back into the classical. So for me, number one is Titus Andronicus. The um, is, is his right. name Sidney Hopkins? No. Anthony. Shout out to Sidney. Uh, uh, Sidney, that was Sydney on Trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Sidney. No, Anthony. Anthony Hopkins, okay, right. and uh, with Jessica Lange in it as well, you yeah. know, shout out to Minnesota. Anyway, so that's my number one, but I know the one that everybody or most folks know is the Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio, and it's something how the algorithms work, because in on the uh, Uber ride home, the Lyft ride home, I'm scrolling through social media, and a meme, a gif came up with a still from that movie, and the caption was like, it's hard to believe that this was about Shakespeare. It was all the kids, like, pointing guns at the screen or whatever yeah, yeah. and i say kids because leonardo dicaprio looked like a child yeah in he was comparison early, to now. yeah he was like late teens right but i think that's closer to what shakespeare must have had in mind isn't this a story about two young people you know specifically yeah, like uh, almost kids basically now, juliet was 13 <laughs> right exactly and romeo was something like 15 and you have to also remember that when this went down Romeo had just gotten his heart broken. Right. Yes. He had just been dumped, and his boys say, "Hey, well, we're going to go to this party. Come on, man. Come on. We're going to we're going to get you out of the dumps." So someone paid attention in ninth grade English. Out of nowhere, <laughs> I was a theater major, dude. <laughs> All right. So, um, and then he goes and he falls in. I mean, this guy is unstable. I mean, poor Juliet. I know, and she wasn't no better. Who who took the death potion? Spoiler alert. <laughs> no, y'all know Romeo and Juliet. Who took the death potion first? It was... Oh, oh no, she, only... Who, yeah, remind me the ending. Like, who died first? Like, how did that go? Uh, Juliet did, and he tried oh. to get some from her lips. Juliet took the potion that made it look like right. she was dead. Yep. And then Romeo came back and saw and killed himself, and then... Juliet woke up, I think in the movie, in the uh, Leonardo DiCaprio movie, she uh, shoots herself in the head. And of course, the last line is um, stated by a news anchor or something like reporting the... Yeah, I vaguely remember that. Anyway, so all of that to say, um, here's here's a, a little music <laughs> from the Capulet party from that film. I think this is really fun. So shout out to everyone who loved Romeo and Juliet. Remind me that man's name, the the man who played Mercutio. I don't remember his name, but he saved that movie in my in my mind. And we need to put some respect on a black man. What was his name in the Matrix? Oh, let me think. Matrix. Probably the same name he had when he was Mercutio. <laughs> well, it wasn't. No, I'm talking about the character's name. Um, 
Harold Perrineau. Mm. Is that the same man? Yeah. He had a haircut. Anyway, shout out to Harold Perrineau as well. Um, love that film. I need to go back and watch it. And of course, they keep the text and they're speaking in iambic pentameter. So the juxtaposition between the, you know, the, the classical and then the contemporary. And Baz Luhrmann's, that's, that's his bag. I need to be careful giving all this praise to this because uh, <laughs> we do need to be getting into the new things. That's my point. Like this, this recreation of Romeo and Juliet was cool. Yes. Okay. Sure. sure. Let's not do it again. Let's, <laughs> let's make a movie of somebody who got something that needs to be on screen. There's a lot of people out here writing plays. Okay. Truth. Anyway, so uh, one sharp, let me go to my soundboard here. One sharp that I wanted to bring up is uh, about Rachel Barton Pine. So uh, folks may remember last week we were talking about the Ravinia Festival and Marin Alsop and uh, every, everything that's going over there in Chicago. Well, Midori was supposed to play at the uh, Ravinia Festival and got sick, and Rachel Barton Pine herself stepped in. I'm reading a little bit from Violinist.com. Violinist Rachel Barton Pine fills in for Midori at Ravinia on three and a half hours notice. Most of us would have to say no, but Chicago-based violinist Rachel Barton Pine was ready to answer in the affirmative when the Ravinia Festival called her late Friday to perform Prokofiev's Violin Concerto Number no. 1 with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and conductor Marin Alsop. Of course, Rachel Barton Pine bodied because that, that's, that's what, what she, she does. does. That's just what she does. Mm-hmm. But that's some pressure. That's some pressure. It's a, it's many things that I'm not going to do with three and a half hours notice, you know. Right. <laughs> Much most, less go play a concerto. <laughs> most, of the, most of the violinists that I've interviewed usually say that it, it takes them, you know, even if they've played something before, it takes them a little bit to get it back under their fingers, you yeah. know, when they're in fighting form again, yeah. right? Yeah. And is that Prokofiev... You know, well known enough that you can just slide in and do it. Yeah, that is a really good point. So, like for me, I'm thinking if I had to tomorrow or you know in three and a half hours play the Mozart Concerto, if I had to, had to, had to, you know, gun to my head, I could pull it together because that's one that we all know and we, right. we've all practiced. But yeah, maybe the violinists need to reach out. This doesn't seem like a a front of the catalog. Right. She's got a <laughs> piece deep, of music. She's got a deep bench. But she really did it. Anyway, just a quick shout out to Rachel Barton Pine. There's a video on um, YouTube where Rachel Barton Pine is sort of giving some uh, practice tips. Uh, it's episode nine of 24 and 24 concertos from the inside with Rachel Barton Pine. So here's a little bit of uh, Rachel Barton Pine showing off an excerpt from this violin concerto by Prokofiev. You know, I intentionally uh, liked to share that recording with just Rachel and not the orchestra, because something that uh, folks really need to think about is the fact that when we practice these tunes, we have to hear the orchestra in our head. Like, we can't wait till we get with the orchestra to sort of think about that right, sort of projection right. or that sort of call and response. We have to, and a lot of people use uh, rehearsal pianists, you know, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, that's something that I think... Folks who don't practice at that level or, you know, aren't soloists even don't always think about that. We have to have such imaginations as uh, musicians, you know, Mm. to be able to capture that imagination and keep it in there for long enough to um, realize it on three and a half hours notice. Shout out to Rachel Barton Pine. 
You're good. You you're you're incredible. So really you're good, doing the work. That's a, another sharp. And you know, not to not to sit here too long, but I also think it's important to note that all of the work Rachel Barton Pine does with the black music, it's it's really a wonder that she could just pull this out. But mm-hmm. you know, and not that she's not able to do many things, but if something isn't you know what you've branded yourself as, I think yeah. that makes it even more exciting to. You know, see you jump out like this. I agree. All right, well, our last accidental for this week gets a flat. And basically, it goes to academia as a whole. So so last Mm -hmm. week, Scott, uh, maybe in the triloquy, we were talking about Nicole Hannah-Jones and, you know, that that whole uh, thing. You can go back to Opus 107 to take a listen to that. Well, since that news came out, Cornell West wrote a letter and he's out. And he is gone from Harvard. Now, it's not that he was kicked out or anything, but I'm reading here from News1.com. The shadow of Jim Crow, Cornell West rips Harvard in letter of resignation after tenure controversy. Scott, before I uh, start reading, I'm afraid to come. <laughs> I have anxiety about coming up on a word I don't know now <laughs> after two opuses <laughs> of getting caught with my pants down. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Cornell West has made no secret of how he feels about Harvard University. The noted academic publicly chronicled his claims of the Ivy League school rebuffing his request for tenure before he just up and quit altogether. But on Monday night, West, whose tenure plight preceded that of Nicole Han- of Joneses at the University of North Carolina, yet bore many of the same arguably racist hallmarks, left nothing up to the imagination and made his disdain for Harvard clear with no uncertain terms in a public letter of resignation that he tweeted to his one million followers. First of all, shout out to Cornell West using social media, right? So mm-hmm. I, I still, you know, feel like there's some work to be done in affirming social media as that thing is something official in that way. But, um, and I'll link this for everybody to read the statement. But when you saw that, what were, what were your thoughts? If Cornell West can't get tenure somewhere, damn, who can, you know, that was my thing. Um, it's another one of those instances where I read it and, you know, thought, okay, it's expected, but yeah. you know, surprise, surprise, not surprised, but I have to wonder if this is the real beginning of the trickles of the dam break. You mm-hmm. know, if, yeah. Um, and this I'm is really what we need. Like cautiously optimistic about it. We need the people who. I, I hate to say this. I hope this isn't misconstrued. But you know, when the people who deserve these positions, the black folks who have done this work, have won the awards, and you know, look at their resume, they got it. If they can't even get in. I feel like it's their responsibility to make these stories and make these narratives known because we, the rest of us really don't have a chance. Those of us who don't happen to have won a Pulitzer Prize, you know, in Nicole Hannah-Jones's case, we don't have a chance. Right, but, you know, Cornell is another one of those people that when he leaves there, he can go, he, he's going to have his choices, you know, yeah. of, of where to oh, go. Oh, certainly, certainly. So um, w- where do you think would be a good spot. Where where do you think he needs to be looking? Well, Nicole Hannah-Jones went to Howard, you know, so maybe uh, Cornell West will find a uh, an HBCU. Uh, you know, there's conversations there as well, though. So when right. Nicole Hannah-Jones, you know, w- uh, announced that uh, she was going to Howard, um, an anonymous Howard professor 
responded to that. And that was also a bit of news. I'm going to um, read a little bit of it here. Um, I'm, uh, I'm linking uh, blackenterprise.com, but it says, I am a quote from the letter. I am a member of a devalued and disrespected faculty at Howard. The administration's leadership practices have soiled the bright and beautiful experiences in teaching that uh, in teaching that pushed me into my classes daily, but have dimmed my formerly boundless, excited joy. You know, we've talked about that concept before on Triloquy, just loving something so much and then coming to terms with the issues that are therein. And, you know, I'm glad that this letter came out because I feel like Nicole Hannah-Jones, Cornell West, wherever he goes, they have a responsibility to fight for and go to bat for the faculty, especially the uh, BIPOC and women faculty there who might be having some issues in these structures because I'm sure Nicole Hannah-Jones and again, Cornell West, wherever uh, he goes, they're, you know, they're, I, I would hope anyway that their presence in those spaces will come with, you know, a bit of respect. Right. Folks, you know, paying them right and, and all that sort of stuff. We know that's not happening across the board. So, you know, they have a, they have a responsibility to, uh, to address that. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not only the black people, Scott, that are, are having an issue. I saw on uh, social media, I'm friends with uh, Alan Thiessen, a, a saxophonist. Um, he left academia uh, uh, recently. I'm reading uh, from a, a blog here, an interview on adamscottneal.com. Um, he was basically asked, Alan Thiessen was basically asked, you know, why are you giving up this cushy job, you know, to be down here on the streets as a freelancer like the Mm -hmm. rest of us and a a composer. Um, He said, after spending 17 years teaching at the collegiate level at four different institutions, I am convinced that it is an increasingly difficult environment in which to pursue a creative life. The constant demand to not only teach and conduct research, but also act as camp counselor, psychiatrist, administrative jack-of-all-trades, recruiter, financial aid liaison, tech guru, and more, all for low pay, wore me down. The key part of that to me is when he speaks to um, the difficult environment in which to pursue a creative life. I think, you know, so many of us come to these places and maybe not even musicians, writers or, or whatever, you know, we come into these spaces hoping to really explore our craft, what we love so much. But when you have so much put on you by the institutions and you can't even you do the craft. The why, why, why are you there in the first place? You yeah. are, you know, you end up doing a different job than yeah. what you had, had even hoped. Yeah. So imagine all these people that are cobbling together a living. Yeah. As an adjunct. Right. I've got a couple dealing of, with all of that on top of, yeah, yeah. I've got a, I've got a couple friends uh, that are hyper educated PhDs yeah. and multiple masters and all these, all this sort of thing that, are scraping by as basically a part-time teacher at a couple different schools. Even a friend of the podcast, Garrett Schumann, he's been over in Michigan grinding it out. And you can see through his social media posts, he's tired. He's getting worn. So through all of these personal uh, stories and uh, relationships, you know, proximity you have to this, hearing the stories, understanding the stories of Cornell West, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Alan Thiessen, you know, many other people. Is there anything that could get you into academia. I mean, does UNO have a price that, well, everybody has a price, but, mm-hmm. you know, could you put yourself in this situation? Let's say they they say, all right, Scott, we want you to come back and teach uh, creative writing or, or something that you really love, you know, podcasting. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> 
I'm just joking. <laughs> no, they want you to come down there and teach something that you're good at and you love, and you're like, oh, this is a great opportunity. Let's let's be real and throw out a number. Let's say they want to pay you $125,000 $125, a year. Are you going to go down there understanding what everybody is saying about academia? Well, I just don't think that I can go back to Omaha. I mean, well, let's, no, no, well sorry. No, so let's take it away from Omaha. Just no disrespect. The, the University of Triloquy. You uh-huh. know, <laughs> are you going to go and teach understanding what the, these pressures are that people are talking about from the most famous, you know, all the way down to folks we don't even know? But you just said that they're going to pay me one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. Yes, is that enough? That's well. What I'm saying is, is that the price tag is part of a big part of the equation for a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people are trying to make a living and yeah. support a family. Yeah. So, well, I'm, well, I guess what my question is, you have your, you know, you have your job and your salary and all that stuff. Would you do a career shift for that much more money understanding what all these folks are going through? Wow. And, and, you know, while you think about it, <laughs> I'm not <laughs> because I don't want to put, I, I feel like I am no less respectable. You know, I'm no, I'm no less of a, a troublemaker than some of these people. So I would, I'd find myself in the same position, I feel. I, I don't know. I, I feel like we've got enough middle-aged white guys. I, I don't need to. <laughs> That's your answer? I don't need to go down and, what, you're going to give me the safe thing? That's, how is it safe? How? That's truth. <laughs> I think you're being safe. It's fine. It's fine. So uh, to- I don't think I don't I don't think that I could do it. Yeah. I, really, I just really don't think that I could do it. Not yeah. in this milieu. No. I will want to. I, I love to think about stand. <laughs> I love thinking about standing in front of you know a group of ten grad students talking about some of the stuff we talk about on Triloquy, really getting in my bag. You know, I'm the professor that they tell everyone that it's crazy. <laughs> but, but I think that would be so cool, you know, to be in a, a, a space that is exploratory in that way, and not only exploring music, but exploring thought and, and exploring solutions to current problems. Mm-hmm. But if this is the ecosystem, let me just keep my podcast and mind my business. Right. Anyway, uh, so to transition us into the second movement where uh, Scott and I are going to take the second ending, I thought we could listen to a little music by Alan Thiessen. So this is his sonata for alto saxophone and piano, a work written in 2003. This recording features David Wozniak playing alto sax and Krista Wallace-Boaz playing piano. That's my bag. Mm. I I love music like that. I don't want to rehash the conversation from last week about challenging repertoire and and that sort of thing, but that's my bag. I just, you know, let me just repeat that. I love that aesthetic. I really want that to be, you know, the most 
classical, the most traditional of what we mean when we're talking about this art form and when we talk about regular performance. Yes, the Beethoven and the Haydn can come in every now and again, but there's too much incredible music like that, you know, to, mm -hmm. and then all of the work that those musicians put into it. That's not, you know, we we're already talking about Rachel Barton Pine coming in with the Prokofiev. That's not a piece of music that you can just sit down and read at the last minute. No, either. you wouldn't do that in three and a half there's, hours. There's work that goes into right. this music. So, yeah. the, you know, the industry needs to respect that. So I'm, I know I'm preaching halfway to the choir, but uh, shout out to Alan Thiessen and uh, to those musicians. But we're here in the second movement where Scott and I will take the second ending. We will uh, talk about a piece of music that we've been repeating over and over and over again this week, and we finally have an opportunity to take that second inning and talk about it. How about you get us started for this second in, uh, second movement? So how many times have I come to you with a piece of music that um, I have to set it up like how special it is, how it makes me feel, how, you know, how important mm -hmm. or poignant the lyrics or a certain phrase from a guitarist might be? Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm so sorry to... Um, interrupt but what uh, what i meant to mention was that every time you bring in a piece of music the artist is listening <laughs> like you're doing a good job of you know catching the ear of oh am i suppose shout out to joel puckett from uh last week but yeah and check out some of his other tracks too he's he's got some good stuff going on but, anyway sorry go on so, no i i mean so like when you when you feel that way and you you take a piece of music music to somebody and and they listen to it and they don't react quite like you uh-huh like <laughs> okay so okay so get in that headspace yep okay so a friend of mine sent this track by remy wolf wolf to me mm -hmm. a track called woo but specifically the panda bear mix okay panda bear another a, a male artist yep. so sort of a team up between these two and he was telling me how the lyrics moved him and there was one part in particular that he was in tears and I have listened to this thing a dozen and a half times. Okay. And it it's a great track. I lo I love the way it it moves, but I'm I'm having a hard time getting into into his love of it. And I want to I want to bounce it off you. That's right. So the point that he really liked is coming up here. That's incredible. She sang there. Right. Can you imagine that live? The emotions that go into that. Like, you have to be full-bodied. You know, I forget what we were talking about, but, <clears throat> you know, there are some pieces of music that you can't just halfway do or some performances that you just can't halfway do. If you do it, you have to commit right. full body and spirit. And that's what I hear there. I love that. I'm going <laughs> to be repeating that myself. Um, repeat that myself this next week. Yeah, I, I'm just, I'm just not at the level that he was at, and I yeah. wanted, to, I just wanted to see if it was something with me. It's really know? cool visuals now, as well. The, the thing that I will say about Remy Wolf though is that listening to some of her other tracks, when we were honoring PM Dawn a couple of opuses ago, mm -hmm. I said if anybody knew of an artist sort of doing that, sort of, um, you know, hash bar sort of sound yeah tip me off well remy wolf has several tracks that are like that so if you if you're looking for the the trip hoppy uh trip hop okay yeah that's good that that sort of thing then check out remy wolf because she's got some some jazzy trippy tracks let's get a little bit more of this mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I hear a summer, not evening, but afternoon. Definitely a, a summer. <laughs> it's definitely daytime. <laughs> mm-hmm. But just, you know, out and about and having a good time. That is so carefree. I love the energy of that. That, that's, that's a cool shout out to your friend for suggesting that to you that i like that that's really good no charge well, <laughs> well uh you know i was again shout out to uh and rest in power to biz Marquis. so thinking about um you know just a friend and uh going through some of his other music and then branching off into a lot of other stuff from the era i found myself thinking a lot about pianos relationship the piano's relationship with those earlier days of hip-hop i was thinking about um opp we shared that here before how that you know that octave is a is really cool and there's piano throughout that well um a piece of music that i want to share with everybody is actually one um by the ill harmonic orchestra shout out to the phantom he has a tune called jackin for keys and i've always sort of thought about this as one of hip-hop's piano concertos so Mm. how it works is Uh, The Phantom has strung together a whole bunch of famous piano themes in hip hop and then, you know, has written uh, lyrics on top of it. You have, uh, you know, stuff from all over. The first time I performed it with them, I was trying to pinpoint every single one. And, you know, shamefully, I couldn't remember each of the samples. Some are more famous than others. But uh, I think the most famous of them is uh, from a a Wu-Tang tune called Cream. I think it's coming up here. Time coming a hundred styles and running. Been wild since I was a child, and my smile was coming. Updated profile, million miles from bumming. Here to smarten up the crowd from all the down they dumbing. Got Chloe on the keys, flowing in the breeze, rotting the rhythm, but no need for throwing on the D's. Please, you know. So today's guest is Conscience the MC. He was joined by one of the members of his ensemble, classically dope, Derek Masloff. And basically, you know, what we talk about is his approach to fusing hip hop and Western classical in a similar way that Ilharmonic fuses an orchestra with hip-hop. Conscience, the MC, takes the uh, traditional woodwind quintet, flute, oboe, bassoon, clarinet, horn, sometimes add in, uh, adds in a little piano, and uh, uses that as his way of spreading uh, his uh, aesthetic and, and his love for hip-hop and the way that he thinks uh, that hip-hop can be joined by classical so again huge thanks to conscious the mc and to derek masloff for joining me for uh this opus to transition us into uh this conversation i uh, decided to share a little uh go-go with you one of the first things that i um asked conscious the mc to speak on is the importance the significance of go-go as even an example of and uh, of american classical music there's so much go-go out there for us to really uh, check out and dig into but the tune I'm going to share with you today is called Why Me Up by Chuck Brown so here's a little bit of that and here's my conversations with Conscience the MC and Derek Maslow I think Gogo, the foundation of Gogo with regards to, to my career and what it has allowed me to do is the basis of what I base everything off of, uh, even before hip hop. Like the foundation for music for me was Gogo and then hip hop. Mm. Um, but in this region of DC, that's how it is. Like Gogo is the, the hip hop of, 
of this DC, Maryland, and Virginia region. You know what I mean? And 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 within the construct of hip hop, they implement um, a lot of uh, percussion and drums, a lot of uh, call and response, and 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 more more recently, a lot of original lyrics being written uh, to Go Go Grooves covering uh, uh, popular top forty songs. But yeah, yeah Go Go was the foundation. I started with Go Go in a band at about thirteen years old. Oh wow! <laughs> Has Go Go maintained its its status? Are the Gen Z kids listening to Go Go and uh, appreciating it in the same way you did? Um, I don't think they are appreciating it the same way. I think they're actually surprised at how Go Go has been used throughout mm. the throughout the uh, the tenure of, of of music, especially hip hop. Um, there was once a time where you know, uh, 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 Trouble Funk. Um, was a band here in DC and then you had rappers like Curtis Blow and all them used to come down. And mm -hmm. I mean, the shows were so outstanding as to where these rappers, Curtis Blow and them, they were saying that, yo, when we come to DC, we actually have to open up for these bands. There's no way we can, you know what I'm saying, come on after these bands and think that we're going to have the same impact or, or get the same notoriety and support that that these go-go bands are doing. And, yeah. and but right now, um, no, the younger generation, uh, they embrace go-go, the go-go culture. I don't think they understand the extent of it and just how much it's been uh, utilized throughout uh, throughout music. Um, and they definitely don't, um, they don't understand just the impact of it with regards to how wide it's been used and how many different genres of music go-go has actually been implemented in. Yeah. And I think that's one small example, one big example, maybe even of, you know, how that appreciation to the next generation uh, and, and opening them up to, you know, things they may not have always known, but are foundational to them and foundational to all of us. You know how important that's, that is. Go, go and many other things in my book um, as a as an example of American classical music. Now, I know that's very radical uh, to a lot of people, but, you know, in the work that you've done with classically dope and other Otherwise, how have you, uh, you know, learned to define classical music? If someone just on the street asks you about classical music, what's your definition for them? <laughs> Great question. Um, it's very, very simplistic. I would define classical <laughs> music as uh, something that is timeless, that includes, uh, 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 I guess, more structured melodies and harmonies and, and, and textures and, and and uh, compliments of different instrumentation. I guess that's how how I, how I would define it. it. May not be like the textbook definition sure. of it, but but that's how I would define classical music. Derek, does this broader definition of of so-called classical music come into conflict with your training, with your understanding of of uh, of the genre? It's a good question. Um, I mean, to be honest, before I started working with Conscience, I don't think I ever actually thought like, what is classical music? Because it's just mm -hmm. something that you do, like. Oh, like I play the French horn, so that means I'm a classical musician. So it's just the kind of the thing that it was. I, I never really thought about it, but yeah, I mean, it gets at the root of I think what we're getting at is that there is no real such thing as classical music. It's just kind of this this grab all term. So I don't know. I mean, for me in, in the group, it has something to do with the fact that we are playing these kind of classical instruments, like the idea that there's an oboe and there's a French horn and, and a bassoon. Like somehow that brings an element of like classicalness. Um, mm -hmm. in some sense though yeah it's not a, it's not a complete definition by any means 
So conscience, how did, you know, classical instruments, so-called classical instruments come into the picture at all? Did you just decide one day to throw some winds in? What, 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 what led up to this? How did it all happen? Oh, well, actually, um, I had had a, uh, a meeting with an artist um, here in DC who had a really, really uh, successful song on YouTube. It was like almost 2 million views. And we were talking, oh, wow. and she was part of this festival at University of Maryland uh, called the Next Now Fest. And this was, uh, was a few years ago, back in 2016. And so um, I got on the website, reached out to uh, the musical director, um, uh, director of musicology actually at the time. And um, he responded very favorably, connected me with the professor there. And, and he was like, yo, um, I think I may have a, a quintet that may be interested in doing something different. And so they asked me, you know, like, why do you want to do hip hop with classical um, musicians? And I was like, mm -hmm. why not, first off? And secondly, you know, it hasn't been done in the way that I'm looking towards doing it. You know, we talked earlier about, you know, the one-offs and, you know, you have your your, your major artists like Jay-Z and Kendrick Lamar and, and Nas who do your, your one-offs with the big uh, orchestral settings. Right. But nothing along the lines of like a root-structured group. And 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 I did some research and, and looked around and I, I couldn't find anything. And, and, and then the stuff I did find, it included... Uh, orchest orchestrals, uh, sets with drums and, and all kinds of stuff. I said, okay, cool. I don't want to do that. And I was, I was really just focused on being as different as possible. And, and the quintet and when, when it was presented and I was like, okay, cool. Um, he was like, yo, do you want, he actually asked, did I want to include any type of percussion? And I was like, nah, I just want to see what it sounds like without it. Yeah. And then I, when I got to, when we got into it, I was like, okay, cool. I have to start looking at myself as an instrument as well, which is one of the things that that I appreciate about uh, about Derek and the way that we uh, the, the the way that we collaborate um, is one of the things that he had mentioned um, in our collaborations uh, with this most recent cohort of classically dope is just the importance of um, not trying to do too much and like being comfortable with staying in my lane, you know what I'm saying? And then, and, and the classical staying in their lane and us finding a, like a, a nice median in the middle yeah. as opposed to, you know what I mean? And, and, and so far, so, so far it's working, it's working pretty good. You mentioned percussion and, and drums a few times, you know, it seems like drums, so to speak, you know, maybe not the instrument, but at least the sound is, an integral part of hip hop. We've heard the classical samples that throw the 808 on top of it or, or, or whatever. So, I mean, does hip hop need those drums? Are you producing hip hop without drums? I, I think we've been led to believe that hip hop needs drums. Um, I don't and I'll, think, and I'll quickly add this because you know when we talk about the griots and the history of you know speaking yeah, with the, the people of the drum, exactly. Yeah. yeah, 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 and and so you know it. it I, I definitely understand that we are people of the drum, melanated people. We are people of the drum, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like this. And, and, but I also, that was actually one of the main reasons why I didn't want to incorporate it. Like when I tell you, I, I really wanted to go as far left as possible and to bring people as far left as possible with me, you know what I mean? Because I, I think when, with regards to when you're talking about music and change and, 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 and innovation and being unique and original, I think, what's being done with classically dope is needed. Like not having drums is needed. You know what I mean? Just to show a different aspect of not only musicality, but also artistry. 
you know what I mean? And, and then it also forces me as an artist, you know what I'm saying, to see how far I can go, you know, with, 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 with my artistic skill, you know, and not relying on, because when you have drums and hip hop, it's almost like you, you, uh, you don't have to do, as a lyricist, you don't have to do so much. Right, right. You know what I mean? Um, but with this, with this arrangement with, with hip hop and classical music and not having drums, it actually forces my timing to be more spot on. It forces me to actually listen to, 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 to what the musicians are doing and like waiting for spots for me to drop in. Like it's a piece that Derek and I created titled Dreams and, uh, and, and so forth and, it, and it's three movements. And for the first movement of it, I wrote a stanza, sent it to him. He, he, he created um, a, a composition around it. Before the second movement, he created a composition and then we had a conversation and he was like, yo, I think the feel of this should be dramatic. I think it should be, and then, so, and then the other movement, he said, I think the feel should be upbeat and more so, you know, uh, 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 more spunky and all. And so, so then I actually had to take his arrangement and composition, listen to it a million times and be mm -hmm. like, okay, as a lyricist, how do I fit in here how do i so then i have to look at myself as almost like an instrument so now my voice isn't just isn't just a voice it's now an instrument it's part of this ensemble now so now right. i have to pick and I have to pick and, and and choose when to drop in and and even with that part I, i'm just really getting comfortable with that um derek helped me a lot with just just the whole timing of of, of a lot of those uh those movements because the second and third movements of those piece weren't easy to write to. yeah and there's mixed meter yeah there's some like there's a, like a lot of mixed meter so yeah i mean what conscience adds to this music is like this incredible rhythmic energy like it's awesome um and he has this really really powerful lyrical talent where i sort of give him something that frankly is pretty plain like there's not that much going on um and then like the way that he uses his text to bring it to life and, and not just bring it to life rhythmically but like pick out text that's really meaningful it's been really so fun so Derek, are, are you writing music in the in the so-called traditional sense or you know uh, you know notes on the staff and is that how this comes to be? For the most part. Um, yeah, I mean we're uh, at least at that time operating out of a bass woodwind quintet and a lot of times a woodwind quintet with piano. So a lot of it is just you know the wind quintet could read it and then yeah the wind quintet could play it by itself and it would be fine or conscience could rap on top of it. But then as it's grown, it's been a lot more open-ended and relying on improvisation and sort of like, you know, this is a chorus. These are the chords. Here are some licks. Like, here are some ideas. But the idea behind the music is to create a kind of environment that's way more responsive and live. Uh, because, like, one of the parts, like, about us being classical in the Wind Quintet that I think is mm -hmm. kind of a detriment is, like, you know, we're, we're playing Francais. We're playing, you know, Nielsen, whatever. Right. You know, it's the same thing every time. Like, obviously, all our music is like that. You know, there's no real room for freedom. Besides, like, uh, I mean, playing wrong notes, which happens all the time. But, sure. but uh, yeah, in this music, I want I want it to be more open so that it's, like, there's a spontaneity. And, like, conscience could do something different. And then whoever's playing the clarinet could, you know, like, jazz in that sense. But, yeah. Uh, but still within a kind of classical, like, it doesn't sound like jazz, I don't think. It has a classical framework, but I'm just trying to, like, make it the box a little bit more open. 
Yeah, it's funny because uh, the more I've been uh, watching uh, those videos on YouTube conscience, the uh, the algorithms will try to put together a playlist for me and include your videos, but call it jazz. And, you know, mm. we're, we're, we're using that word freedom a lot while still having one arm to the very strictness of, you know, of, of classical. In, in that regard, what stays and, and what goes? How far are you willing to move away from that symphonic sound, that chamber music sound, as opposed to getting into something that more people will recognize as jazz or maybe even something different? I don't know. I think, uh, and Derek, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think this space that we're in, like, and not kind of like not being able to define it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Is is what makes it magical, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, please, please, Derek, I'll, uh, chime in. I mean, that, that's. I mean, but and 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 I guess I'll I'll dive in a little, you know, deeper because Derek, what I'm thinking about is the idea that sometimes conscience might, in the moment, want to do something different. You know, which requires a a level of uh, understanding, improvisation, all of those sorts of things from the perspective of the instrumentalist, you know, are, are you stuck on the page, so to speak, or is it is it freer than, you know, many of us can imagine? I mean, I won't lie, it's a challenge. It's a challenge because most of us have been trained our whole careers to sort of like it, what's on the page is what it is. Mm -hmm. So like in that live setting, like getting everyone to be really reactive. Like, I think we had a show at one point where like Conscience wanted, you know, like like you do like, like in a big man, he was just like, all right, I'm gonna I'm do my own thing here for a little bit, like you guys yeah. stop. And like everyone has to be, <laughs> like aware enough in the moment to, to know like, okay, like we're gonna, um, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna stop. But we do stuff like, um, some stuff is on the page, a lot of hand signals and calling, like, you know, we have, we have like, here's this riff and we just do walk conscience in the spoken word pieces often. We'll just say, all right, number two, number two, number two, and number two loops, number two can get louder. Like it can swell. It can sort of like, you know, it's a little more flexible, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. But one of the things I think is most exciting is like our ability to try and grow in that direction because once you sort of take the limitations off and you're moving outside the page, there's just infinite possibilities of, of things that can happen. And uh, I'm excited to keep exploring them. I mean, we obviously haven't been doing a ton of this because of the pandemic, so. Uh, yeah. I'm thinking about uh, a story that my dad used to tell. He said one of his homies talks about the first time he got his ass whooped was after he got his black belt. He had gone through all of this training <laughs> and thought he could just hit the streets and, and talk shit, but you know, it. It, it, what happened is what happened. I'm thinking about that because so many classically trained musicians, you know, we go through school, even uh, parts of our careers thinking, okay, we're at the pinnacle of musical training. You know, anything that's out there, we can do. But <laughs> Derek, I'm sure that you've seen that's not the case, especially when it comes to this sort of fusion. Yeah, we don't know anything. Like that's a, that's a big <laughs> thing that I've learned. Like, honestly, like, you know, so much of uh, like once we, you know, like, hey, all right, we're going to, but we do exercises like, yeah, you know, there's three chords. We're just going to practice improvising. And, and, and to start, like most of us have nothing. We, we can't do anything. I mean, you can play your instrument at a high level, but if you, if you can only play when there's music in front of you, like how high of a level can you really play? Like, I think that's a real question. Um, and some of the musicians that Conscience has brought into work with, like they're more ear oriented. Like they're not as like on the page. And the stuff that those guys can do like on the fly is like mind boggling. It's a, it's mm -hmm. just a whole different level of music making. So like the thing that we do, like, in, in a very narrow sense, I think is like make very precise, beautiful sounds sometimes when they're, when, when they are beautiful, sometimes they're not, but 
Yeah. Um, it's just one tiny little component of like this, this whole bigger thing that we're doing. So there's so many different skills to learn. Um, but I do think like the possibility of us expanding into those skills while maintaining like the sort of niche that we do is exciting. And that's sort of what animates me in working on this music. Conscience, I wonder where your levels of frustration are when it comes to that. I mean, if you could just uh, teach a class, have a residency at one of these conservatories, what are the things that uh, you would be teaching those students that you don't see when you're collaborating with uh, uh, these musicians? We've talked about improvisation. Are there other skills that you uh, see as being missing when you try to you know, put together these collaborations with classically trained musicians? Oh man, um, the frustration for me um, <laughs> has been coming from a world of improvisation and almost, and because with hip hop, you know what I mean? It's like at any given moment, I can be like, okay, I'm not gonna rap, I'm, I'm only gonna rap half of this first verse of this yeah. song. Then I'm gonna <laughs> right. stop and then I'm gonna talk to the crowd for like two minutes and then I'm gonna come back in and then I'm gonna start with the third verse of this song because I don't feel like rapping the second verse. You know what I mean? And so now it's in, and it's happened a couple of times where now I've, I, we, we've performed and I've had to really put myself in almost like a, an, a, a structured, um, I don't know what word, word I want to use, but. Um, Just put yourself point, in a box, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't, I can't, I can't, there, there's no room, there's no room to deviate outside of it, you know, and, and with, when, and especially with performing with to certain, um, classical uh, compositions and arrangements. It's like, no, and when that note hits, I have to be saying that, you know what I mean? I have right. to be, you know what I mean? When, <laughs> when, 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 when this measure comes here, they're, they're expecting me to say this word. They're expecting me to be at this bar of the verse, you know what I mean? And so, mm. it, and so it, it's forced me to become, uh, I don't know if trained is the word you want I want to use but more <laughs> uh yeah no I, I I know what you mean I know exactly what you mean and and what I think you're hitting on is culture you know understanding why in the moment you would just want to do the first verse so understanding why in that sort of setting you're like cut the music you know I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it you know acapella or, or or whatever you know I think that's a, a big part of it Derek I'm wondering um what that looks like catching up to the cultural side of the conversations of the cultural side of the performances. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a big, I mean, it's a big part of what we do because the music that we're working on, like is, you know, like part of like what we try to trick ourselves in, in classical music is that like this music is all in vacuums, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's not really like about any specific like issues or, or times or like, or, or like, it's just, you know, music is absolute music. Like sort of like, which I, I think is like kind of a joke, but um, but it's a thing that like we tell ourselves. And this music is not like it's all about like the stuff that Conscience is rapping about is serious stuff. Like this is about oh, yeah. this is about culture. Like this is about stuff that's happening right now in front of us. So that kind of flexibility, like when you're working with music like that, like of course it makes sense because like why would it be the same every single time? Like well, it doesn't feel the same every single time. Um, so like that's what's so great about working with Conscience is the ability to like. To, to flip on a dime and, and address that. But it is, you know, it's a it's challenging for us uh, on, on a lot of different levels, like technically of like where it measures conscience in now. And mm -hmm. then sort of like, like you alluded to, like the cultural part is just like, you know, this, it's not something that we are used to. I, I'm glad to like, we're getting more and more used to it, but we didn't come from that place. Yeah. And you know, conscious, I feel like 
oftentimes in these conversations, we talk about culture or the culture as a means of not using race words, you know? So just to go there and to, and to be frank, there are classically trained musicians who are black that understand the culture of, you know, those sort of hip hop spaces because, you know, that's how we grew up and that's what's around us is the fact that you know, you stand in front of these white musicians who may not be plugged into the culture, a part of the performance? Is there some sort of novelty there? What, 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 what are your thoughts about, you know, who are the musicians are behind you? I, I thought about that a couple of times, um, but, I, but I'm, I'm very confident and very thankful for the fact that uh, the groups that I've been able to work with, especially this most recent um, one, We've actually had conversations, you know what I'm saying, in, in rehearsal and before shows, you know, where where and very open and honest, you know what I'm saying, about it. Um I know that when we perform songs, uh in like case in point, one example we performed at the um at the anthem with the National Symphony Orchestra. And one of the songs mm -hmm. we did was uh Militant. And before the song, I came before the song started, I said, yo. Um, in order for certain things to change, and it's like 2,500 people out, out here, right? And 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 most of them don't look like me, right? And 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 so I'm telling them like, yo, in order for certain changes to happen, we have to have a conversation. Everybody's not gonna like the conversation, but it has to happen. And then we and then we and then we commence to going into starting militant with Donzi, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then out of Donzi into a rap tale that's using lyrics like um, police shooting like the Splash Brothers and these judges not reffing the game. So eventually what it's might meant to be is my people should just cock back and aim. You know what I mean? And so these are lyrics that are being recited over you know what I mean? And so, <laughs> and so yeah. it's so dynamic um, but, but uh, very impactful at the same time where after that show the, the manager of, of the anthem was like, yo, I've never been to a classical show where it felt like I was having a conversation. One, I haven't seen nobody rap constantly with the with, with, with the woodwind um, set up. Then I have call and response. And then you're talking about women and race relations and, and, and police brutality and all of these things. This is new to classical music. This isn't, and but but also there is a hunger for it as well mm -hmm. because everybody there was fully in tune and um if i'm if i'm to, to dial back for a second i think what would put me in a mind frame of, of of when beginning classical dope that it would actually work was looking at black violin and mm -hmm. actually shout going, out to them yep yeah and actually going to one of their shows and it's like hold on this is a hip-hop show with violin players <laughs> that's, that's what this is this could, you know what I mean this, or, or somebody could look at it as yo this is a classical show and people rapping like and so at that moment I was like and, and this show was at the Strathmore and we're talking about it is jam packed which lets me know that not only is there a curiosity and a desire for what we're doing but also a hunger you know what I'm saying and 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 a hunger of both respects one about about this about this new genre of music and two uh, 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 almost a hunger to be in the same vicinity as people who don't look like you so like so, so one of the the concepts of my class do dope is to bring 
just to bring people from different background backgrounds and lifestyles and cultures and makeups, you know what I'm saying, to put them in this one place because everybody likes music. And if the music mm -hmm. is good and it's delivered a certain way, you know what I mean, then you can't deny that. So it's like, so so like classically dope is like you see a you see a black guy and white musicians, and it's like the sucker punch got you. That looks interesting. You know what I mean? Like boom, got you. And now that you're here, you know what I mean? Now you have to listen to these lyrics and you have to listen to these conversations. You have to hear these melodies. You have to hear these harmonies. You have to hear how these how these how these musicians complement each other and how these, you know what I mean? And so it, it, it becomes an experience. So I don't even look at this classically dope thing as like you're not coming to a, a classical hip hop show. You're coming to like a uh, a therapeutic musical conversation. Yeah, yeah. Derek, I'm going to ask you this before I ask it to Conscience. You know, Conscience was talking about that curiosity, you know, to be uh, among people and ideas and aesthetics that are different. From your perspective, is that curiosity more on the, you know, I'll, and I'll speak plainly here, white folks interested in hip hop and that seeming like a, a safer space than the traditional hip hop show or, you know, black folks interested to, you know, hear some Donzi or, or whatever you're sampling? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think it kind of depends on like where we're performing. I mean, I think your first point about sort of like, like white people being like, oh, like I don't really like, go to hip-hop shows but like there's a lot of other white people on stage and like you know that's a French so this should be so like, okay yeah how scary could it be and like yeah that's that's true like there's there's a there's a part of that um but i again i think that's sort of what is so interesting about these shows because like from the kind of like like from the white-ish perspective of like i'm like i like to see classical shows like when you see a show you as an audience member like you are there to like receive like that's what your role is like you don't add mm -hmm. anything you don't like there's no part of yourself that's involved that's just like I will sort of like turn, you know, the the output part and I'm just receiving stuff. But in classically dope and like all of a sudden, like conscience is in their face and he's like he's talking to him, he's asking questions and like people are people are responding and and I think that your 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 sort of point is right. Um it might be like a like a for a lot of people like an introduction to like I introduction to hip hop, frankly. Um but what it does really well is it grabs people and forces them to confront some stuff uh, that hopefully they like they should be confronting, frankly. Um, and I think that's one of the strong things about what Conscious is able to do. So Conscious, on the converse, what is the conversation when it comes to Black folks coming to these hip-hop shows and feeling like that sense of danger uh, or maybe even that sense of freedom that we're used to in those spaces is not there. If I go to a show and, you know, half of the folks on stage are white, maybe I won't you know, spark up the joint that's in my pocket, or maybe I won't do this or, or that. Have, I, I wonder what your thoughts are on that side of the conversation. Um, it's funny. Um, a lot of conversations I've had around that were inter interestingly enough, um, my counterparts and peers and, 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 and so on have been like, I've always wanted to go to a classical show, but have no, but had no reason to. Hmm. And 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 then too, I would I hear right after that, you know, like, man, that shit is like that shit they be playing in like the seventeen hundreds or some shit like this, right. you know, seventeen hundreds <laughs> or some shit like that, bro. Like, who wants to hear that, man? Like, right. you know what I mean? And so now they have a reason to 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 come and 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 partake. Um, ultimately, I think ultimately, I I would want. You know what I'm saying? My folks who, who come support me to pull Jays out of their pocket 
and then to be, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying, to spark up and pass, and pass to their white neighbor while they sit back and listen to these melodies and all of this stuff. <laughs> like in my mind, that's like ideal, like how it, how it, how it, how it should be, man. You know, um, yeah, yeah, that's a whole different conversation itself. Well, then, and and I guess you know, similar to that, what's your response to the traditional hip hop? audience member who would say that hip hop uh, doesn't need that affirmation. Hip hop is doing fine the way it is. We don't need these kumbaya sort of sort of spaces. We've made a way out of no way, X, Y, and Z. You know, what is, how do you sell the idea of all of this as a means of bringing community together? Because, you know, there's so many black folks these days, especially who are just disillusioned and who believe in building our own and our own exclusive spaces and all those sorts of things. Oh, I've been I've been approached head on with some with some uh, influential people in my city who've said some stuff like, uh, <laughs> "Oh, conscious like rapping for the white folks." Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I've heard. I hear. I hear it a lot. Um, and and my response, you know, after I get out of my own feelings about it, because you know, what I mean, like I I. I I, I would be lying if I said that it didn't bother me, you know what I mean, in some respects. But I also understand that what I'm doing is much bigger than myself. I, I look at mm. what I'm doing as something that is going to help the culture of not of music and and just the 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 relations the relations of people in general together. Like I don't like classically dope is is very minuscule in 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 with uh with my idea of, of what of what I hope musically what I hope comes from it um musically like this is this, okay it's classical music and rap fine but the bigger aspect of what I'm trying to show like there was and as we had a conversation before like I like there was Everything that you see with Classically Dope is very purposeful. Um, from the way we're marketed to um, the places we perform to the messages that that are that are that are said in the lyrics, um, and even to show like even this climate that we're in right now, I think Classically Dope represents in my head what the world can, the potential of what this world can ultimately be. Right? We have mm. our we have our uh, yeah, we have our certain groups of people and races of people that like to stay amongst themselves. I get that, you know what I mean. And is there power in that? Tons of power in that, you know what I mean. I'm definitely a huge fan of group group economics and all of that. Like I think like races should embrace that, you know what I'm saying, to better themselves and all that. But at the end of the day, like we are connected. Like even with all of these separations, you know what I mean. There is a fine line that connects all of us. You know what I mean. And 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 I'm just walking the fine line, man. I know a lot of people that are not going to be fans of it, you know what I mean. But, but also coming from like a place where I've I've come, I've I've seen some very, some very racist things and dealt with some, been in some very racially charged moments, you know what I mean. And 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 music is is one thing that I've seen where both of these groups of people can be in the same place and no shit kick off. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I, I've seen how music can bring these people in the same space and know they may not want to be there, may not even like looking at each other. But because they're there on the grounds of music, it, it opens the door for a conversation to be had. 
You know what I mean? Um, but don't get me wrong, man. Like I, I jokingly say all the time, man. Like I, I'm, I, I call myself like the Dave Chappelle of rap, man, because mm-hmm. you know Dave Chappelle. You know he has a, a one, one time he said it in one of his shows, man. How much I would want to perform for my folks all the time, all the time, man. If I did it all the time, I walk out of here with fifteen hundred dollars. <laughs> sure. You know, so, so, you know, so I mean, I'm using right. that as an analogy. You know, what I'm saying to be like, like as much as he wants to perform, you know, what I mean, like he understands that, yo, like there's a bigger population that I have to serve. You know, what I mean, like, and 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 at the end of the day, I'm not just for my people alone. You know, what I mean, I started there. You know, what I mean, and 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 everything I'm doing is definitely for that, but I'm not just for my people. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, and, 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 and this gift that I've been given and, 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 and position that the universe has placed me in to, to be in communications and meet people like Derek, you know what I'm saying? And other people in the quintet, Katie and, and um, Katie McCarthy and, and Thomas Whipple and Lydia Consilvio and Brandon Felder, like, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it's a, uh, yeah, man, I can go on for day. It's just dynamic. Oh, sure. And, and I, just, I just love everything, how it happens and how it's come together. And, and the fact that, that everybody in this group right now looks at looks at the world and looks at life as like, yo, okay, we understand who we are as individuals. We understand what race of people we belong to. We understand, okay, cool. We got that straight, all right? But we got some shit that needs to be done, right? Yeah. Work needs to be done. And can't just one people and one faction do it alone. Like it's gonna take a village, like real live, a village, you know what I mean? And, and that ideal is not popular with a lot of folks. And just to bring it back to music, when you're talking about hip hop and classical music, like that's not that's not that's not something that's 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 largely looked upon, but and, and like favorably, especially from the hip hop community. Like, bro, you selling out, bro. Like, so you mean to tell me you gonna rap and just instruments playing and no drums? Like, dog, don't you know that rap needs drums? Like, don't you know? Like, what are you talking about? I have people tell me, dog, you're black. No, you are people of the drum. What are you doing? Like, I can. Trust me, man. Trust me. Like, <laughs> trust me. I hear it. I deal with it a lot, a lot. But I, I look at it from the standpoint of music. Okay, let's take out, let's take out, let's let's leave music on the table. Let's take away hip hop. Let's take away jazz. Let's take away classical. Let's take away country. Let's take away pop. Let's take away folk. Let's take away, and let's just leave music on the table. Right? Um, how many people can we affect positively with just this thing called music on the face on the table? How many people can we bring together with just this thing called music on the table without putting these subtitles and subcategories on it, right? And so that's how I look at it. And um, I think ultimately, when when it's all said and done, people will be able uh, will look will look at, at at this merging of classical music and, and hip hop, and 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 the more people that do it, I think they're I think they're going to understand it. And, and they're going to understand the importance of it um, from this from this like two two separate worlds of 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 highly talented artists and musicians. Like what can happen when you merge those worlds and the barriers that can be broken down. You know what I mean? And to me, I get I get like a natural high off of that. Just 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 visualizing like yo what that what that could be. And yeah. And so yeah. So, Derek, understanding this very nuanced, um, non uh, non-monolithic 
sort of conversation that happens, you know, that, you know, that consciousness is, is describing within black spaces and, and black communities, understanding that how do you approach advocating for those spaces in the more, you know, so-called traditional rooms, you know, when it's just you and a woodwind quintet and um, the Hindemith quintet on the music stand, um, and you're advocating for those spaces, understanding how things are, you know, not always on one page on the other side of the conversation. How do you, you know, how do you, how do you do that? How, how do you put, you know, this sort of fusion, what, you know, what conscious is doing next to, you know, the, the traditional repertoire as an equal, you know, really just going back to what conscious was saying about leaving music on the table. How do you advocate for that understanding that there are, you know, black folks who might not be on board with this and this is black music that you're engaging in? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think what conscience said, you know, is, is about the same way I feel it. In a lot of ways, I think it's kind of about humility and like, we're mm -hmm. all going to get together in this space and it's like sharing, you know, like we, like for Hindemith, like we, we think this music is great. Um, we want to share it with you. Like, and it's not with any kind of expectation of like, you know, like, uh, this is like some sophisticated thing that, that you ought to know about, or like, this is some sophisticated thing that you have no chance of, like, you know, if you haven't had this, this knowledge or this training or this background. Um, and we, we just pick music. I mean, at, at it's most simplest. This is music that we love. So we want to share it with you. And I think that is a common connection between all sorts of people. I, I, and yeah. I've seen it in the room. I mean, we play all different kinds of stuff. Uh, we'll do sets uh, where it's, it, we play a, a piece and then conscience does his own thing. And then we do something together and like, it's just seeing like on people's faces, like when they get it um, and in white people, black people, all different guys, it doesn't matter. Um, but there's like that moment of connection and that's what music is all about. Like in the quintet, you know, like we, we spend all this time like uh, working on these pieces and trying to perfect them. And I think like the real reason that we're all doing it is because music is, is allows us to express and like to connect with other people. And I think that's for us, like in the quintet, it gets frustrating when you're nine to five, like working on Francais. It's like, well, what is this all for? You know, what are we yeah. doing here? Like, yeah. You know, we, you know, you play it as good as you can play it, and then it's like, okay. But, like, what this is, is, is something else, and it's about connecting with people. Um, and, and our sort of, you know, quote-unquote classical music is, is just a, a vehicle for sharing, and then, like, working with conscience and what we do with Classically Dope is, a, is another vehicle for sharing. But it's a, it's, a, it's a vessel that, like, touches a completely different, like, group of people, and that's really special, I think. You know, so, I'll go ahead, go ahead. I, I just want to chime in real quick to piggyback off what Derek said. We did a show... Um, in DC, uh, it's called the Cometamorphosis Conference. You hear the title of that? Cometamorphosis sure. Conference, right? Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. It was hosted and held by Anthony, is his name Brow Browden? Brow um, the guy who uh, went to Egypt and did all the, the, the uh, he did some of the excavation and he teaches a lot of classes. Anthony, first name is Anthony. Um, we'll, uh, we'll find him and put yeah, him in we'll there. Find it. And so we uh, did this show. Now, mind you, this show is we're walking in and they're talking about <laughs> they're talking about uh, math, the importance of mathematics, science, how the white man came and stole some stuff and would learn some stuff. And that. so this is the type of show we're at. Right. Yeah. All right. Then classically dope walks in. Right. <laughs> Just, just, you know what I'm saying? Just picture this, right? Everybody's yep. in dashikis and holding staffs with onks and all, I mean, laid out, you know? And I'm in there with my stuff on, my crystals and my, my talismans and all of my stuff on, you know what I mean? And this lady comes to me and she says, pulls me aside. Listen, I've never told a story before. The, the, the girl with me at the show pulled me aside. She says, 
King, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can hear that question. Yeah. And so I kind of laughed it off. And uh, we walked in when we proceeded into the, uh, uh, the the performance area. And I'm talking about literally our performance was right after uh, a, a workshop on uh, colonization of something or another. It was heavy. The tension in the air was thick, right? So we're on stage and um, I did a couple songs and then I stopped. <laughs> then I stopped and then I talked to everybody like yo like yo I can't remember exactly what I said verbatim but what I said was almost like yo get off the ignorant shit for a second okay like you know what I mean y'all booked us to be here we paid to be here you know what I mean the people who run the you know did the show they knew what they was booking you know what I mean and look here yes I know what y'all being presented classical music and hip-hop and this is why it's being done. So after the show, long story, after the show, um, the gentleman who uh, was who, who put on the conference walked up to me and he afterwards and he said, thank you, brother. Thank you so much. And walked away. He didn't have to tell me what he was thanking me for, but I understood it. You know what I mean? Because one of the songs that we got in there um, was titled, uh, uh, I Pray, right? And so the song is talking about how that we're all paying homage to a higher spiritual source, right? That we're all connected to. And then in the midst of that, I gave a spiel about skin color. I gave a spiel about where we're from and being proud of where we're from. Like, and so I think that's what, and, and so after that show, like I think that that particular crowd, they got it. They didn't want to get it. They did not want to get it, but they got it. And, and I think that's the, the powerful thing about what, what we're able to do is that, you know, people come in with their ideals and, you know what I mean, be like sticking to their guns with it. And it's like, you know, after the show, you may not like it, but you'll respect it and you'll get it. You'll understand, you'll understand why you saw what you saw, why you heard what you heard. And you'll have a different appreciation for it. So I'll I'll and 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 wrapping up, you know, that that's that's a really incredible story. You know, one thing I'm thinking about right now, we'll get to it, you know, as we uh as, as we get out of the conversation here, but the music video connected to um uh my people. It's so moving with the music and the aesthetics and the words you're saying. And it's hard even for me to see the backdrop of that community and to see these white musicians. I think about the power that would be there if they were black. But, you know, I, I feel like your music, your performance, this this fusion is really challenging, you know, even some of the black folks to step back from the picture a little bit and see what the this larger, you know, realized impact of this sort of fusion could be. Uh, Derek, I'll, I'll throw this to you first. What do you think that looks like, you know, classically dope, fully realized as an aesthetic and a type of performance that's as normal as, you know, the the uh, the Janacek and the, you know, all of these classic uh, wind chamber music things, you know, what, what is it, what, what will it look like when these two ideas really sit on the table equally? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't think that classically dope, like really should be, you know, it's not Janacek and like, and all that stuff, like Janacek is what it is for a reason. And it yeah. sort of has its place on the shelf. And I think classically dope, you know, it's, it, it's us. But there could be other versions of classically dope. I mean, like there could be people like we're we're sort of based in the DMV, but there could be people in Chicago, or there could be people in like other areas confronting like different things. 
Um, and I think that that's, it's, it's not a set thing. I think that's an important part about it. I think that people should, like, hopefully get together and meet people that they wouldn't feel comfortable, like, meeting and hanging out with and performing with. Like, that's the idea, is, like, to reach out wherever you are and, like, just see what happens when you do collaboration. So I don't think it'll ever sort of solidify into this thing. It's just, uh, it's different every time. It's different every time we rehearse. It's different every time we, we chat, we perform. It's, it's just evolving because of how much everyone is sort of stepping across and doing something they're not you know, usually comfortable doing. Yeah, evolving, evolution. I like that word. Conscious, even bigger than uh, the musical implications of what classically dope could uh, could be for the ecosystem. Larger than that, on a systemic level, are we talking about everyone holding hands and just getting along? What's your What's your biggest vision for what this could do? No, I'm not talking about everybody holding hands and getting along. That shit is not gonna happen. <laughs> not gonna happen. But I just think. Um, the importance of showing that uh, that people can um, be in the same room and if not holding hands, can at least look each other in the eye and be honest with each other. You know what I mean? Um, um, I um, I think the main theme, uh, if we're talking about from a lyricist perspective. Um, of what's being done in Classically Dope is, is a heightened sense of honesty and mm. unbiased honesty. You know what I mean? Um, because in even, I'm gonna refer to that song Militant again, because even in Militant, I talk about uh, police brutality and things of that nature. I also reference in the part of the song, um, uh, I say, uh, are y'all finished or done with that cooning? Too many mm -hmm. of my people, you know what I mean? So it's like some some talk. So it's not like um I say we blindsided by them bottles, by fake butts on them models. I'm trying to move my people forward, my foot stomping on the throttle. You know what I mean? So it's like I'm addressing what stuff the stuff that's entertaining, you know what I'm saying? Majority of folks, you know what I'm saying, that look like me in my environment, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, but and, and all but also at the same time addressing the ill shit that 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 the blame is definitely placed somewhere else, not on us. Like this is some systemic shit that needs to be fixed too. But if I'm going to talk about some systemic things that needs to be fixed too, then also let me address the BS that we're doing too. Sure, sure. You know what I mean? Accountability. So me, like, it, you know what I mean? It can't be it can't be one sided. You know what I mean? I can't tell you that that yo that's not that's not right. That's not right. Let me go around the corner and shoot up a whole crew real quick. Like, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, it, so it, it's, um, I don't know. I think we've been able to find a, 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 we've been able to walk the line very uh, efficiently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we, um, uh, before we fade out with uh, my people and I ask you to uh, talk a little bit about that, how can folks uh, reach out to you, learn more about Classically Dope and learn more about all of the other things you're doing? Oh, dope. Um, you can definitely log on to conscious.com, K-O-N-S-H-E-N-S.com um, on social media uh, at Classically Dope, um, at Conscious DMC. And yeah, um, yeah, that's it. Uh, all right, great, yeah. So I've already shared the um, the music video to my people across all of my social medias. You know, we're gonna hear a little bit of it here. For the person 
um, approaching this content, this music for the very first time, what sort of picture would you like to paint for them? What does this piece of music mean? What do the visuals that go with the music mean? Oh man. Um, wow. Uh, I'll say uh, a very, uh, if, if, if you're looking for something that's, uh, I'm gonna repeat myself, unbiased and and, and very honest, uh, very transparent, uh, very open and clear, um, and different, um, then 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 you should enjoy it. Don't I don't think anybody should walk into the room of classically dope expecting something. I don't think they. I, I don't think you should walk into it with a certain expectation. I think you should walk into it with an open mind. And and just uh, I guess the expectation of knowing that is that that it's good music. Um, I think one of the things that has been lost in in, in hip hop, especially with current hip hop artists and lyrics, is just the social and cognitive aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things that I that I that I would tell people. You know, what I'm saying if you if 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 if, if you're open to learning, and 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 not only learning but then going to research some stuff. Um, then this is the place you need to be. The world thinks because I'm young, melanated, and into the latest fashion craze and love hip-hop that I have nothing to say. Or don't realize the real lies being told, I mean sold every day. See, because we come from homes broken to pieces, so I'm collecting those to bring peace to the folks that mean the most. My people. My people. The ones they call disadvantaged, ratchet, and simple, or lost in a sauce with a mentality crippled. <laughs> my people. My people. The ones exploited on TV for fame, trying to make a name for some change, because we know what that game called struggling feels like. My people. Isn't that just a incredible listen? Like the visuals that you find on YouTube are, are really incredible, but aesthetically, what a what a pleasant thing to listen to. I mean, what what were some of what what were some of your thoughts after uh, spending some time with that piece of music? I've been back to this several times since you first introduced it to me. It, it was weeks ago. Yeah. And I w- I've been looking forward to this opus because of this. I mean, if you want to just have that going on in the background, mm-hmm. that's one thing. But to sit down and do intentional listening, yeah. uh, that town crier vibe that he's got and his delivery you know he's speaking the truth, but you know he's he's it's it's um, uh, stump storytelling. Yeah. You know you know what I mean. Yeah. It's It's um, I, I feel like I'm there. At, <clears throat> I feel like I'm there after hours or after close. Yeah. And we're having a more intimate conversation. I love I love his delivery. Yes. Huge shout out and congratulations to MC Conscience Conscience the MC I should say. <laughs> shout out to Conscience the MC. Uh, I also wanted to give. Uh, Derek Masseloff, his flowers as well. You know, some of the things we were talking about in the interview uh, were the difficulties that Western classically trained musicians face when they enter these spaces, not culturally, but musically, right? you know, but technically. Mm-hmm. There's so many things, improvisation, just groove and all of those things that you don't learn in the conservatory that uh, the members of Classically Dope have had to 
really, you know, pick up, you know, rush and, and scramble and just really figure out how to make that vibe. And I think they've created a, a really incredible sound. So um, huge thank you to Derek Masseloff for uh, being a part of the interview as well. Conscience, the MC, thank you so much for your work. I'm looking forward to some future collaborations. I hope we have some uh, future collaborations, even musically. I would love to um, lay something down on bassoon. You know, even even myself, Scott, I, if I got a gig, you know, you know, talking about three and a half hours notice if somebody called me in for a hip-hop gig and they need a bassoon let's even say they just straight up need a bassoon i would be way more nervous about that Mm. because my training you know did not prepare me for that sort of thing and having the pleasure to perform with ill harmonic and and uh some and you know a few uh similar ensembles I, i feel more comfortable now but being able to go with the flow and take the music and the ideas off of the page off of the sheet music and having the confidence to you know, go with whatever happens and improv. And that's, that's something. And that's something that we cannot sleep on as a Western classically trained musicians. They're the ones that know how to play. Right. They're the ones ones who know what they do. They're not playing a piece. They're playing the instrument. (laughs) They play a music. Right. Anyway, let's go ahead and get into this triloquy. We've been going into the repertoire for examples of trills. So um, did we mention that? uh, Oh, we did mention that Rachel Barnett performed Prokofiev. Prokofiev Mm -hmm. won. So we were going back into his catalog and uh, found a little excerpt from Prokofiev's flute sonata. This is the fourth movement of the flute sonata. We're going to listen to a little bit of this trillness. Some nice little trills in there. Prokofiev wasn't playing. Prokofiev was not playing. Prokofiev wasn't a flutist? Prokofiev. I don't think so. And you know what? Uh... People, I, I, I'm not going to nerd out for long here, but I feel like <clears throat> when people think about Prokofiev, they think about Peter and the Wolf, right? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, incredible piece of music, but Prokofiev lived, you know, a trill life. Like, I love his war sonatas, what they call the war sonatas, his mm-hmm. piano sonatas, written in response to the way Stalin was shitting on him. And, you know, of course, Prokofiev died on the same day as Stalin, and all of the news was about Stalin's Sure, death. so he didn't get the, the spotlight. But of, of course, you know, as they say, all of the musicians that were forced, of course, forced to play Stalin's funeral were mourning Prokofiev, actually, and not Stalin. Oh, you know, that's, that's good. The, that's the story of that. But anyway, we're here in the fourth movement, the final movement, the triloquy. All right, Scott. Garrett. We had a conversation before we turned the mics on that can that we cannot have here and and not to you know dangle something in front of everybody's you know face i'll i'll give a little bit of context so i got um an email i got some communication from someone that i felt like was a little disrespectful okay i feel like it was a uh, a result of the podcast uh industry, the the field of podcasting not being respected as much as TV, film, radio, uh, you know, the the big, you know, the the established uh, sort of mediums. And I I mentioned all three to, you know, maintain some anonymity of, you know, about specifics. But what I wanted to talk about here was you know, these are conversations when it comes to people in power, really influential folks in in different fields. You know, me coming on even this platform 
and speaking up for myself and speaking up for the other podcasters by naming these folks would be seen as problematic, ultimately beneficial to some people, but not me. Mm-hmm. If I came and and let, let's let's make up some stuff. Let's say the and of course and, and again I'm I'm being as you know anonymous as I can. Let's say a PBS station, a public television station in um, uh, Las Vegas. Okay sent me or you some communications about a, a potential collaboration and, you know, sort of just assumes that, oh, whatever we offer you, uh, you're, you're going to take, you know, you, you are, you are going to do that. From my perspective, that is a disrespect of the hard work, the blood, sweat and tears and the dedicated audience that goes into podcasting. Do you feel like podcasts have the same respect as TV? as even, you know, radio, as movies? Do you feel like folks are looking at podcasts as on that same level? Depends, um, because certainly the big-name podcasts would have you think otherwise. Yeah. But, so, yeah. Joe Rogan, mm-hmm. um, for you, Joe Budden. Sure. Uh, who, are, who are some of the other big downloads? I mean, we can, we can go down the list. You know, my favorite murder. I feel like all of these folks, you know, have yet to get nominated for the Emmys and, and do this different stuff. You know, we don't have the podcast. We have the comedy uh, uh, award for the Grammys, right? Like a comedy album can win a Grammy, mm-hmm. but a podcast cannot yet win a Grammy. I think it's important, you know, and, and again, I guess the big point I want to make is that if I name, if I got on here and named the specific institution that was bullshitting me today in my inbox there are certain conversations that would happen that would benefit other people when it comes to respective podcasters and all of that stuff. But I would bear the brunt of it. And it toils me. I was telling you, you know, again, off mic, I I lose sleep over the things that I choose not to say for my own sake. I can't help but to feel like there's some selfishness in there that, you know, I'm looking out for myself and myself alone. And that challenges me. If this cannot yet be the space for some of these real call out conversations uh, from folks of positions of power in these industries. What is, you know, can mm-hmm. we allow our genuine people, our folks who are ready to, you know, be trill allowed in some of these institutions? If I know I can't even talk about the things I want to talk about in relation to them, if I want to work with them anyway, from the outside, much less from the inside, I feel like, the respectability is one of those big, big, big barriers that not even I have the power or ability to traverse quite yet. I think that we're in a a strange period of transition because in the past when, let's say, uh, let's say if you got that email that you're talking about five years ago, sure, you didn't have a platform to call it out. Mm Mm-hmm. And so this is a new sort of way to try to defuse a bomb for some people yeah. that are doing the hiring because you you might get some traction by naming them and you know they and it would force them to deal with it publicly perhaps yeah, yeah. but not everybody has that and also you have to I, I what I'm thinking about right now is the number of people who um, brought a lawsuit against a TV or radio station that fought, that 
that fired them, mm-hmm. they have a hell of a time getting another job because you have a reputation of suing yeah. your employer. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, just to be clear, there's nothing lawsuit related with what we're no, talking no, no, about. No, Scott no, is just no. speaking to an example. Right, so, but when it comes to this example, the organization that you got the email from is not the only one that has the potential to hear this, right? Right. So you might discount yourself from employment issues at a couple different outlets. Yeah, yeah. This way. I so mean, you, you've, you've used words hire and employ. So, you know, maybe just to shed a little bit more light, you know, basically, there are a lot of institutions, a lot of organizations that I collaborate with, that I create content with, that I do presentations for, all of those sorts of things. I feel like there are institutions out there that um, invite me and folks like me, other podcasters into these spaces to talk about some of, you know, some podcast issues and, and consult and, and, and consult and that sort of thing. But the approach doesn't come with the same respect as it would come if underneath our names we were listening, uh, listing another organization or another person's name, maybe, you know, a, a, a more famous person's name or whatever. I just hope that um, anyone out there looking to consult specifically with podcasters, you know, put the same respect on our work that you put on your work. No, we aren't, you know, us podcasters, we aren't out here, most of us anyway, with the huge, you know, financial backings of, you know, as I mentioned, as examples, a PBS or a local news affiliate or, or those things. We, we don't have that backing us. But I feel like we have an audience backing us that is looking for, you know, us to really stand up for this art form. I mean, podcasts of some sort have impacted just about everyone. You know, I would I would say, you know, just speaking generally about podcasts, this is a, a medium that is growing, that is becoming more and more significant. Scott, when Triloquy started, you know, one of the issues was length. We were really talking about, okay, length is important. We can't make this thing too long and X, Y, and Z. Most of the podcasts out here that I'm seeing at this point approach that two hour mark, even some of the classical music adjacent podcasts out Mm -hmm. there. It was, Mm -hmm. was, there was a time where folks were saying, you know, 17 minutes is the perfect podcast length. They're getting longer and longer. I feel like that's an audience, you know, that is appreciating that. So with that audience appreciation has to be some respect for the folks who are creating it. Our art form, this art form, this medium is not secondary to your job and your role at someone else's business that you can get kicked out of at the last minute. Look, like like I said downstairs, I don't feel like anybody with a boss has the right to approach me with disrespect as someone who does not have a boss. Okay? I really hate that I can't share specifics with y'all and call this person and call this institution out because I have bills to pay as well. And I hope, I hope, I hope that through, you know, different sources of uh, support and uh, with this project growing, I can stand on my own two feet even more firmly, you know, than I do now. Not that I don't now, but even more firmly than I do now, not for the sake of the call out, but for the sake of changing the culture. I feel like that's the point that we often miss. It's not about me trying to mudsling and shit on people as much as it's about inviting conversation that is ultimately going to help people. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, uh, talent managers and, you know, whoever, you know, the outward reaching people in these big organizations and these big firms or, you know, the I'm, again, I'm trying to stay anonymous, but there are people there 
who just, you know, need to hear these things. So it's, it's going to be a subtweet for now. It's, it's going to be a, a smoky talk for now. But if you are in a position where you're reaching out, especially reaching out to podcasters for different sorts of collaborations or consultation advice, you need to make sure that your messaging, your communication is as respectful as any executive, any CEO of any organization. Because at the end of the day, half of these people sitting in these offices, shitting on podcasters and reaching out to us, making requests that uh, are not equitable and quite frankly are a little rude, that is nothing for any of those people to do considering the fact that they could not stand out here in the ecosystem by themselves more often than not. They need to keep that job sitting behind that desk. And I'm not shitting on jobs because I'm sure I'm going to be, you know, I would, I would love to be in some sort of, you know, position adjacent to Triloquy in one of these institutions where I can spread this message and, and spread what we're doing. Yes, at the same time, really make sure that you don't let that institution give you a false sense of safety to where you can talk to us any kind of way. This is the warning. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be fair right now. If this continues, especially with this organization, I feel like I'm going to have uh, no choice but to, but to, you know, call a duck a duck, and then we'll see what happens from there. So anyway, anything else to add, Scott? <laughs> I'm not going to be that guy that makes the meeting go long. No. Okay. All right. Thank y'all so much for listening. Sorry I had to be vague this week, but I'm not trying to be canceled. And this is definitely a, a big organization that was fucking with me this week. But again, you know, just in, in closing, I'll repeat myself just to make sure that my messaging is clear. The work of podcasters is important. If you are in another entertainment medium, another content medium, and you're looking to advise or connect with podcasters, you need to understand that the podcasters work, especially the independent podcasters work, involves so many, so much blood, sweat and tears, more than you can ever imagine. Put some respect on our work. Thank you, everyone, for your support. See you next week.